0: Thanks as always for tuning in to another episode of Coming Up Next with Alistair Marks. Whether this is your first time, whether this is your 98th time, the podcast stays alive, the entire back catalogue stays free, all thanks to you and a couple of things that you can do for me to help out. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with the writer and producer of the new TV series, International Student. He's also got his very own podcast called The Sweetest Plum. I'm going to be speaking with Declan Fay. But before we get into that interview... Whether you're streaming this, whether you've downloaded this, you can help me by hitting the subscribe button in your iTunes, in your Stitcher, or in your Podbean application. That way, you don't have to worry about downloading. It's going to do it automatically for you, and magically, it's going to appear in your application every week. You can also leave a five-star rating and a review for the podcast. It helps in more ways than it probably should, but it does help. It's very important for me that you do this. If you support coming up next, it's going to help keep the momentum of the show rolling on and allow me to keep bringing you awesome guests. So let's do it together. Episode 98. Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss?
1: We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss.
0: Yeah, the original premise of the show was like that I would speak to people. In fact, Nato was the first guest I had on the yeah, show. Right. And it was kind of the next generation of people in, in the world of comedy yeah, yeah. and um, and film and TV. Yeah. And then in the first sort of 10 episodes, I had lots of people like Michaela Banis and Bob yeah, Meldrum. Right. And suddenly yeah. it was like, I don't think these people are really coming up Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a good title though. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, there was there was a hotly kind of contested topic in the first sort of few months about whether or not I added Tuesday or tomorrow. Oh, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to the kind of acronym. Yeah. Um, I think it's good you kept it coming up next. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't want to be too risque. Yeah. Um, you you've been doing your podcast, the sweetest plum. For... Oh, we we are on now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Sorry. Okay. Um,
1: <laughs> um, that's good. I, it's,
0: that I haven't said anything. Before. No. Yeah. No. No. It's only it's only been recording for the last minute, so okay. all the um horrific stuff we were saying off. Yeah. Hasn't yeah. All the defamation, yeah.
1: slander. That's that's good. That's in a different file. Yeah, yeah. 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 I keep that one separate. Yeah. It's like the ghost. We do that. We on our podcast, the sweetest plum, just to test the levels. We'll often start talking. And it's, I will then sort of cut that file out and put it somewhere else um, when I'm editing it. But it's a bit like the ghost containment unit from, uh, ghostbusters. If we ever release those files, (laughs) no, I don't know the sort of like, uh, disasters certainly would have for our career, but the ramifications it would have along the way. Cause you don't often Nick doesn't know that I'm testing the levels and, uh, I have wondered I have wondered what I should do with those files. Probably destroy them would be the best idea.
0: Yeah. Or or the worst idea.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's like they're very tantalizing. They're just sitting mm. there. Maybe one drunken night I'll just send them <laughs> out into the universe and just just wake up the next morning and see what's happened. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I did used to start just I would just recorded as soon as the person came into yeah, the room yeah. and just let it roll and you yeah. get to that sort of couple of minute mark and people would be like
1: we started, yeah. Well, you know what, the Marin Mark Marin does that. Yeah. I was very, 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 very fortunate to interview Mark Marin yeah, uh, wow. about four years ago. And he was saying, and I asked him about that how, especially early on when podcasting wasn't as well known, people would go basically do what I did then. Are we on? Is this, is this a, like people didn't know? He said, now people are much more aware, but he said it became this thing he didn't like to leave it on before they'd walked into the room because he felt that was a bit duplicitous but he sort of felt like once they'd sat down that would be the you know that was the moment that it was uh, that that you know they were talking and he said you'll notice a lot of moments especially in his early ones where people are like are we on is that and he would ask them afterwards is that okay but it's that classic thing as soon as people are much less self-conscious when they don't know that it's on Mm. like they're much more themselves in a way
0: yeah you don't have to kind of coax them into it
1: no, no they're just they're being themselves like that's the there's no artifice at all. Um a lot I mean it's a lot of like having worked in radio you know people create a a lot of presenters are uh, have the have a very different off-air to on-air personality because they have to be just up and loud and on for sort of 3 or 4 minutes and uh then they go to the next track but it uh yeah it I don't know it there's a when people are just themselves, there's a lack of sort of self-consciousness to it. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Declan Fay has been working as a writer in the Aussie comedy scene for 15 years. He got his big break on Rove and has built a remarkable body of work, including Sam Simmons Show Problems, You're Skidding Me, Dirty Laundry Live and Fancy Boy. His latest show, Ronnie Cheng International Student, which he also produced, hits TV screens on ABC in Australia on June the 7th. You can also hear his dulcet tones on the podcast The Sweetest Plum, which is available where all good podcasts are sold. And by sold, I mean streaming for free. So you should probably give him and any other podcast you listen to a five-star rating and review. Wink. So pause this podcast, set your DVR to series record International Student on Wednesday nights, then unpause this podcast because there's still more of the interview quite a bit more what have you found i mean i read an interview that you did i think it must have been in 2012 yeah actually i don't think it was an interview i think it was an article that you'd written about podcasting you know podcasting in australia or australian podcasting from my kind of point of view, has really only picked up in the last couple of years, yeah. in terms of even you know the biggest names in in comedy and um, and radio mm. starting
1: to cotton on um, yeah it sort of shits me actually okay. yeah not it used to shit me really badly, but now only like medium shits me I, I only say that because uh, when we very first started. I felt like, that with Nick Maxwell and I, and I don't even know if we've said the name, but we do the Sweetest Plum podcast. And it was, we were just too, we were legitimately, I think the description is still on there. We were, had just, I think we knew we were about to lose our job on a show. Right. And uh, it was the second show in a row we were about to have cancelled. And so I remember saying to him one day, we were in a Hungry Jacks across the road from this old Channel 7 office that I don't think is there. And I said, uh I don't know, there's something sort of whenever you're in a Hungry Jack's for lunch and not drunk, there's something quite reflective (laughs) that goes on. Like you do have a moment of like, what have I done in my life that has brought me to this point? And I just said to him like, I, I, I I'd started to really get on with him. And I just said, would you want to... I've been reading about podcasts. I think Marin had just started. Russell Brand had done that one that had been thrown off because he defamed somebody's daughter. Yeah, right. He told... It was, a, I think, a true story, but it was a sort of quite sexual, involved a spar. And uh, he had, the BBC had kicked him off. Gervais was doing his. And so I'd sort of heard a lot about it. And I just said, would you ever want to do a podcast not knowing the implications of that and then you know he said yes and then you plug a mic into a laptop and then another mic and then you get the extra mixing desk and then it just grows and uh yeah that's basically how it started and it had no intention of that it would get it you know that it would become popular or get us famous or and ironically when you don't try is when things happen so we got offered to be on triple m and and did that for a while but the uh, what When I say it shits me I think what annoys me now Is like I've spoken to lots of young comics Who go Oh my manager told me I need to have a podcast <laughs> And I was like Oh fucking hell Like can't you just do something That's not as a career step Like can't you do something Because you like it Or mm. like shouldn't that be the first thing and, oh, I should have a podcast Like no you shouldn't Like <laughs> the whole of iTunes Is a graveyard of like Fucking dead podcasts Where people did them For like 10 or 12 episodes Yeah And then realized it's really hard to keep doing it or got bored of it or something happened for them and they sort of left it. I mean, look, if you're a young comic, I don't really blame you because you're trying to, you know, trying to do anything to get your voice out there and it helps you find your voice and your style. But it's more, it shits me when I see like commercial radio shows and it's like the... I don't want to name them, but you know, the (laughs) Dick Obama and the girl (laughs) podcast catch up. And I just go, oh, like, I don't want them in the podcast section of iTunes. I feel like they make it. Number
0: one downloaded episode.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I just go, Boris. yeah, it's not for you. Like it's not for, it's, it feels like it. I I hope this doesn't sound bitter because it's not like, I don't, it's, it's, it's genuinely not. I just go, it's not for you guys. Like there's really interesting things being made in podcasts, like, you know, shit town, which is the one being made at the moment, serial before that. And then, you know, there's really great comedy ones being made, you know, going back to like comedy, bang, bang, or Mm. like, and so when I just hear it and it is effectively just the best of a commercial radio show and it's like, you know, set up, you know, today this happened, here's a story I saw in the paper two minutes ago. Here's a funny Joke at the end, and everyone goes, and then they put in like the, and then it moves to the next yeah. bit. I just sort of like that's not a podcast, yeah. like do you know what I mean? Like, and so we, when we were at Triple M, we put out one of those, but we were always trying to make it at least a little bit, you know, a little bit more interesting. Like we'd put a bonus content where we'd talk for a bit longer or something. I just anyway, that's my. I didn't intend to rant about that, but obviously it was uh obviously bubbling it was away. bubbling away in yeah. the back of my brain. I don't know. Yeah.
0: No, I agree with you and when I see those sort of things you kind of go it's kind of like, you know, studios coming and, you know, stealing independent cinema. In yeah, well
1: it's it's funny you say independent cinema cuz you're a, you're a, you're a filmmaker and you've worked in TV and um Where my version of it is, I think it's a bit like it's always dangerous to compare yourself to any bands, like it will always sound righteous. And I, 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 well, I, I, the, but I think about it as someone that grew up in the 90s, about there was this like when Nirvana broke, and then you had this like massive wave of grunge and independent music, and all these like indie bands got signed and a lot of them were terrible because they were like being signed too early and it was record companies going we need to find another nirvana or a hole or a butthole surfers or you know whoever it is we need to find that and so they all got snapped up really quickly which is some of them got money and that's great but like it's when people start the voice and their style is it's there's a tremendous energy to it but it's also very vulnerable and it's if you snap someone up too quickly and give them money too early or make promises to them too early, then you, it can very quickly twist that voice out of shape. And again, I, I swear I don't say this to be bitter. And I felt it when I did commercial radio. There's nothing wrong with someone doing a commercial radio show. If you told me right now you were going to do one next week, I more power to you. We did it and it's... But the what worries me when people do it is nine times out of ten and probably even more than that 9.5 times out of ten because of the very nature of it the, the bits are always three or four minutes they're always very similar in shape they're not very experimental it is a format that actively works against risk it's always ask a question so the most amount of people call in make sure you get x amount of songs in and there's an ad and it for comedians it can really damage their voice and their art like and you hear them come back from doing because whatever you do affects what you make, like if you worked on t v ads all the time and then you went went to go and make you know an art house film, you would have sort of embedded in your DNA in the short term a the same mindset of an ad you know is it does it pop does it will it have cut through is it like going to grab the viewer which is just a very different mood to making an art house film or an indie film or you know even a long form thing of television so i've seen it and i even felt it happened to me after we did tri- triple m for a bit it, it it can change commercial radio changes people's voices and i admire people that can do it and it doesn't change their voices but there's not that many of them how do you see that podcasting has kind of shifted your career? Um,
0: Aside from the aforementioned doing a show on Triple <laughs> M.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it, it shifted it, I think, in a good way. Both Nick and I had written for, had done TV for three years leading up to that. We'd both written for Rove. And we both, we that had been sort of both, we both had a break at the same time. We both came in that year that Rove came back. And uh, we were like, it was the best learning curve I could have ever had. It was 40 weeks of the year you were writing and you had to come up with stuff. And I got on with Rove. And if he liked you as a writer, he was like, he would really sell you stuff. And it was a really great place for a younger writer to be. But I think the, when you write for someone else for a long time, it can affect your voice because you're always thinking how they speak. You're thinking about the words coming out of their mouth. And sometimes you, I mean, that's your job. That is absolutely your job. But sometimes you can forget or you can lose sense of your own voice and your own uh, art, I suppose. And I think that's why if you do it for too long, And I was lucky I didn't do it for too long. Um, We had three really great years at Rove and then a disastrous little period at Channel 7. (laughs) But I think that's why some people that stay in it for too long, they forget what they want to say or they don't even know what they want to say or how to say it anymore. And I think for Nick and I, it was just like it took us back to what we loved about comedy. It was just two guys in a room. We would turn the microphones on and we just start talking and it sounds indulgent. Like it sounds, Oh, we just talk. And, but then we would put a lot of effort into editing it and crafting it and shaping it into segments. But we, to me, it was like, it became this thing of doing it for the joy of it, not to go, we need a segment for TV or how will this, will this be a good thing that grabs the audience at the start? I find it a very on the whole um, podcasting, a very uncynical format and a very i like the conversational nature of it it's i think that you know we we're talking about that at the start when people don't know the mics are on like the great the really good podcast hosts encourage a conversation like a lot of media whether be it tv or radio is not that conversational it's like you know even good community media is come in what are you uh spruiking what are you publicizing let's get the plug out and it's not that it's not that it's not a natural conversation yeah and a natural conversation can go off on a tangent and come back and loop around and i think that that's that's i think that's why people have really fallen for podcasts because everything else is getting like cut up smaller and smaller and I think people like being talked to like a fucking human being you know <laughs> Absolutely. like Talking yeah about real shit as well
0: not just the kind of bullet points of or the agenda so to speak yeah
1: and i think it's how it's delivered like i think it if people do have that conversational tone and it's more natural then the audience feels like they're in conversation with them as well i mean it's a very it's a quite intimate art form like like if you ask people, where do you listen to podcasts or so many people will listen on the way to work or on the way home from work. And or a lot of people I do it cause I'm not a very good sleeper. I'll listen to something before I go to bed. So it's extremely intimate to have someone in your ears yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to be going, Hey, coming up after the break, you know, bah! like you don't want to be doing that. You want to be just sort of talking very like, I mean, that's, that would be a terrible thing to have in your brain yeah, before yeah. you went to sleep. But, you know, you're accompanying people on the way to work. They're leaving their home and catching a tram or getting in a car and they're giving you that hour. And so you want it to be a conversation. And I think the best podcasts that I've seen have been ones that, where the audience feels like they're part of the conversation, like they're in the room with you. And I think, I mean, I noticed when Nick and I finished at Triple M and came back, we just both needed to just like talk again, not worry. Do you have to get to a Ed Kowalczyk track or like, do you have to get the plug in or say like stuff like, you know, we had one of the plugs we had to do was like on triple M, you would have to come back from the break and it was a sponsorship and go the sweetest plum proudly brought to you by, I can't even remember it now, but it was like, oh, the Swiss plum proudly brought to you by SPC baked beans and spaghetti for hungry little human beings. And you had to say that and not <laughs> laugh. And you, how can you? like? And then how do you go into a natural conversation after that? In some ways, I admire the people that can do that because it's like such a gear shift in your mind. But I, I don't know if po- how podcasting has helped me with my career, but the reason I've kept it going in through everything like we did it we got a job at commercial radio we both work nick works at the weekly now he does all their sort of video stuff and voiceover stuff um and i've been writing stuff for the last few years and i sort of do it because it's the one place like you can drop your guard and be yourself and it's the one place whatever mood you walk in you don't have to pretend to be in a different mood like i, I think we have both needed it at different stages how did you kind of uh, start as a writer? Was comedy,
0: did you kind of have designs on being a stand-up and then you kind of went, in, went down the writing
1: path or was it the other way around? Or? I tried stand-up and it, it just didn't... I was probably starting at the same time as like Charlie Pickering and Justin Hamilton and a lot of those guys and I tried stand-up and... I don't know. It didn't come as naturally to me as those guys. Like I liked it, but like it didn't. And at the same time, I ended up being asked by uh, Chris Kennett, who writes for the project. Now, would I be on a show with him? It was just, it was a midnight show on triple R called unexplained phenomena. And he said, uh, would I be on that? And I always just felt like more natural having a conversation with someone rather than getting up and like, here's my five jokes. And Uh, I don't think, I think great stand ups are awesome. So it's not a, it's certainly not a criticism of somebody who does that. But it just seemed to suit me more to just like talk into a microphone. And uh, through that, we started to do shows for the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And they weren't stand up shows. They were sort of, for want of a better word, sketch, I suppose. And I just always really, I think by the end, I was liking the writing and the creating of them more than getting up on stage. Um, I was preferring the bits, like, before we'd get to the actual festival. I liked that the concept and thinking of an idea, and I was far more leaning towards the writing side than the performing side. And that sort of that morphed into that we, through people that we'd met, we ended up both getting a job writing for Rove in 2007, and then that sort of, once you start doing that and that's your job, then, you know, then yeah, you are a writer. And so... Yeah, we did that for a while for three years, and weird periods at commercial TV. After that, and then there was, and then that sort of did the radio thing. And I was always trying to on the radio. We were always trying to write like sketches, or well, like, we were always trying to make it more than just what the radio sort of format allowed. I think we were always sort of pushing against the format of it. And then I don't know, I don't know what happened. That finished in like. Late 2012 And Australian comedian Felicity Wart Asked would I I just talked to her one night at a party And then she said would you want to help me Sort of with the writing Not really I didn't really write for her I just sort of more with the directing of her show She had the show written And I d- started to direct it for her And uh, I did that And then in between And that show went really well for her And got nominated for a Barry And in between that I worked with Sam Simmons And then Sam Simmons in the middle of all of that got his own TV show that you happened to work on <laughs> yeah. which is where I met you and I wrote that show Problems with um, Sam and I sort of realised I wasn't forcing it in that direction but I just went well this is where it sort of landed like I like really interesting performers I like people that have something interesting to say in, a, in voices in, un, in an unusual voice and in very distinct styles and I liked sort of helping them shape it Um, into something and i have to say if if this is wrong you can cut it out but i was thinking as i was walking here i still how long ago was that that was five years ago on problems was it i think so i've still reckon that you have said the funniest thing on a set that i've ever heard anybody (laughs) say do you know what i'm gonna say no i can't remember so i mean i say a lot of funny things okay so if this is if this turns out to be offensive or whatever, you can take it out. But yeah. <laughs> Sam, as anybody who's watched his stage shows or listened to him on the radio or worked with him, he is a very intense performer and person. <laughs> and it was towards the end of the shoot and everybody towards the end of shoots, they start to fray and get a bit stressed and you've just been riding it and doing it for a long time and you often you just fall over the line on it. Do you know what I'm going to say? No. No, yeah, I still can't remember. Okay, so he used to do a performance and it's in the show where he would get bits of ham and throw yeah. them on his head while he was performing and it would create this bizarre sort of ham helmet like his whole head was covered in bits slices of ham and like I saw him do it in Edinburgh and like it brought the house down because he would do it to music and by the end he's dancing with this giant helmet of ham <laughs> on his head and Anyway, on this particular day, were you doing at the time standby props yeah is yeah. that right yeah, yeah, yeah. so you you ha- you're standing there and with your friend NATO who was also working on it, and you 've got the prop that is ready for the next scene like that's the, that's the sort of job which on a show like Sam Simmons is an in, intense job because <laughs> the props are just it can be Completely anything out of this world yeah, it can be a massive saucepan of spaghetti carbonara it yeah. can be a fake bird it can be like meat nativity scene yeah a meat, uh, an entire christmas nativity scene made out of meat that's what i forgot about that yeah. <laughs> and so you've got to be ready and have it ready to put into the scene and keep it sort of perfect and so he was doing that ham dance and i remember as he was doing the dance it wasn't working the ham wasn't sticking to his head and it kept sliding off and he was getting... And this had never not worked before. And he's doing it on set and there's a lot of pressure and they keep yelling, like, action, then cut. And he ended up having to smear the ham with butter <laughs> so it would stick on his head. And then he walked off and he, wa- and he walked up to you guys and he said, who the fuck got me turkey ham to yeah. do that <laughs> dance with? <laughs> yeah. And you were both standing there. And he said, "Why? why did you think you could get turkey ham? And it was a, one of the funniest response I've ever seen. There was this long pause and he said, it serves you right for getting a Jew to buy ham. <laughs> now, yeah. do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah. And did you say it? I, yeah, I did and say And are that. you Jewish? I am Jewish. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> it was, cause it was right at the end of the day and like he, you know, he's an intense guy. And I remember when he said that and most people would just go, okay, no worries. And when you set it back, like the entire crew just erupted with laughter. And your friend who was working on it, NATO, he erupted with laughter. And I just doubled over onto the ground. Like, it was like the release that everybody needed. Because you can't come back on that. Because hmm. effectively, like you're daring him <laughs> to be racist. <laughs> like I was, just, I still think about like any crew shoot that I've ever worked on, I mention the like... You know, serves you right for getting a Jew to buy ham. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ballsy little, Yeah, however old I
0: was then. I know. Like, I
1: wouldn't do that. Like, <laughs> but I, it was, you guys were quite young. And like, like most standby props guys, I think you were both smoking. Yeah. yeah. And, like, <laughs> but he couldn't say anything because it was just such a great call. And then he ended up laughing as well. So yes. anyway, that's my memory of that. Oh, that's a good memory. Yeah. I had actually forgotten about yeah, that. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's yours now. It Feel is. Feel free. Yeah. yeah.
0: And and now it's on this podcast. Yeah,
1: that's right. It's going it's going out into the world. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, do you remember the first time that you that you wrote a joke or that you did kind of perform something comedic or because yeah. you can't, you've, you've grown up in the industry, haven't you?
1: So, well, sort of um, I remember doing it was the Primary school, like, they'd call it the rock and roll night, and they would play, like, it was just all, what do you call it, like, sort of old, like, 50s rock and roll songs, and me and this kid Owen did a, we effectively ripped off the premise of a Hale and Pace sketch, (laughs) does that, do you remember Hale and Pace we wrote our own like words to it, but we ripped off their premise, which was they would come out in this giant suit and it was two heads coming out of the same suit. And we did the same thing, except we just got a massive like triple XL t-shirt and had both our heads sticking out of it. And then did, I don't remember the like material that we had. I think I remember one bit where it was like, oh, we decided to join ourselves together. The only problem is, and then the other one would go, we keep finishing each other's sentences. So I remember that. And I remember thinking, oh, this, I really enjoyed it. Like I remember thinking, but again, I sort of remember the like, Making it all up, I don't remember the gig that much, like I remember sort of more being pleased that the material worked or something like it's more like more about the creative process than the I think so product. yeah it's and so that was definitely the that was the first one I'm trying to think if there was if if there was any other when I was a kid, I used to always I would record myself like interviewing people around the house, yeah, so I think there was it was always leaning in that direction. But I, I don't know, I think to be a, like, I think to be, I used to always, like, it's easy for writers to sort of go, oh, fucking talent, or, you like, (laughs) but I, if I, I probably used to say that quite facetiously, but I actually think it's an incredibly difficult thing to get up and perform every night, and especially in stand-up, where it's, like, the distance, if someone's playing a character, like, an actor, then they're sort of insulated by being that character. But I think when you're a stand-up and you're like, the line often between your persona and your person is so thin and you're getting up and you're saying what you think is funny, you're not reading someone else's words and you're, I think that's a really, it's a tough existence. Mm. And I admire the people that get good at it because to do anything well, you have to fail, but it's a very public sense of failure. Over and over and over again. So I sort of really admire... I don't know. I admire anybody that can get on stage and tell their truth and while they do that, make people laugh. There's a great uh, Marin interview that I listened to, going back to him
0: for a minute with Louis Theroux. Yeah. I don't know if you listened to that. I haven't episode. heard that one, no. Uh, it, I think it's from sort of tail end of last year. Yeah, right. And uh, apparently, Louis was going to make a doco on uh, stand-up comedians. He spent like... Quite a bit of time yeah, with right. Aaron interviewing yeah. him, and it was kind of in that series where he was doing it with uh, people in the porn industry and oh, professional yeah, wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was all about that kind of idea that stand-up comedians—it's such a fine line between um, not real and fake, but mm. that persona and and you know, kind of under the mask, and how they have to toe that really kind of dark line. Mm. And th- you know, the really successful ones are the ones that do. You know, you, you, it
1: is just truth, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, he the one that really struck me was him talking to. I think it was his biggest episode ever at the time was him talking to Louis CK. Yeah, and there was a whole backstory to it because this is going back, you know, four or five years now. But they hadn't spoken for years. It was going to be the first time they'd sort of fallen out, as most male comedians do at some <laughs> stage. But he and He talked to Louis about... Louis said he was effectively a sort of absurdist prop comic in the vein of sort of early Steve Martin stuff. But, you know, like any act, if you keep doing it, it just gets a bit tired or you're not as connected to it anymore. And I'm completely paraphrasing because I heard this five years ago, but something along the lines of that Louis, you know, had done a, a gig, the same sort of similar absurdist thing and he was sort of having a drink with another comedian afterwards and just talking about he could he keep doing this he was worried about raising two daughters but and was just sort of telling this story and the other comic said why don't you talk about that that's what you care about like you're making me laugh as you talk about it why don't you just get up and do that and he like literally the next time just threw his set list out that he'd had for 10 years and just got up and spoke about that now that it doesn't mean that, like you or I or anybody, can just go to an open mic night and get up and tell their truth and it'll be awesome. I think that he'd learnt the craft for years, and he had the craft and he probably had the stage presence, but he just found the right words to come out of his mouth. And I'm, I think the reason I probably am talking about, keep bringing it back to stand up, or uh, as I'm talking to, is I just having just had the comedy festival and I saw hannah gadsby's show the other night and she it was it won the best show in the melbourne comedy festival and has now been booked for the comedy theater um to do one extra show and i've heard this morning that it sold out in an hour wow and it really is i watched it on the weekend and it's had a profound effect on me like it um I don't even want to give anything away of it because it also feels like her story to tell and in case anybody is going and also now they can't go because I think it sold out in the last hour but <laughs> she basically gets up and talks about her life as a starting as a as a kid that knew they were probably gay well no knew she was gay in Tasmania and it was illegal at the time in Tasmania and how her entire comic persona was created out of that, that she would... So many people that were bullied get into comedy because it's a way you use comedy to deflect tension and to deflect things away from him. And she sort of goes down that path and then how it got her to here and opens the show by saying, right, this will be my last show because I'm, I'm done using comedy to deflect and for self-deprecation. And... uh then goes on to perform just the most honest hour of stand up that i've seen but also very funny like you're i was watching the girl i was in the weird i got one of the last tickets i was in the was at the back of the forum and they're weird like horseshoe seats yeah yeah. Yeah, you're sitting like side on (laughs) and um you and so and you're sitting in the booth with people you don't know and so i was sitting i had one friend there but then the rest of people i didn't know And I was watching this girl and I think a lot of people probably went because she was nominated for the award. They've seen her on Please Like Me and didn't know what they were about to get. And the girl opposite me was almost like in physical pain, like writhing on the seat. Like it was hurting her to hear what Hannah was saying and the difficulties of growing up. But at the same time, she was like convulsing with laughter. And I was just like, this is... Like a physical effect that was having on this girl... And like she was laughing and crying at the same time, and I was just, I don't know, like it sounds like the most like hyperbolic thing to say, but it it made me believe in like stand up as like one of the great art forms. Like that's so sounds so <laughs> naff to say that, but I was thinking it's just all Hannah is a person on the stage. Like we're in the very back row, and she's miles away with just a light on her, and she stands at a microphone and talks, and just with her words going into that microphone there's a girl like laughing and sort of crying and writhing at the same time like i I just thought it was i thought it was amazing it's
0: pretty amazing how comedy i mean you know kind of that shared laughter is like a really well probably the highest form of connection between people on a i guess an energetic or a philosophical level and I and and it kind of allows for vulnerability to to seep in, you know. Once you get once you build the trust through laughter, yeah, you can. I, I went and saw um, uh, Teak and Higginbotham, oh w- yeah. Watson's show last yeah, yeah. night, go to hell, yeah, and the way that they blend comedy and horror is yeah, yeah. is amazing. Yeah, that, that kind of formula that they've got because. I've kind of come to the realization that all of that kind of spectrum of emotion is elastic. Yeah. And it's like the further that you can take someone, the harder you can make them laugh, the more you can make them cry.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's like you, whenever, look, this is getting, it's getting quite heavy. Just stop me if it becomes (laughs) like painful to listen to. But I think for me, why that matters is it was about... I was doing my first ever comedy festival show. I was still at uni and it was just a sketch show. Like it was not, you know, we were just going to be playing the uni students. This was not a groundbreaking pick any sketch show that you've seen from a uni. And we were sort of in that sort of area, you mm. know, there's giant props and there's poo gags and <laughs> a, somebody's changed the lyrics. I think we took B- B- u two's beautiful day and turned it into a beautiful bay about <laughs> like Port <laughs> Phillip Bay. Like, and there was some funny moments, but it was just what you would expect it to be, but it was, you know, it was what we thought was funny when we were 21 and, and not to be heavy cause it's, but it, uh, I think it was about two weeks or 10 days before that, my, um, my dad passed away and it was unexpected. It was a heart attack. And I remember thinking, oh, well, I won't do the show now. And then, even that night i thought well that you know i want that's i'll have to call them in the morning along with everything else and tell them i won't do the show and my mum actually told me to do it and and it was one of those everything after someone dies is often so unbelievably clichéd but you know the every everything that happens is sort of you feel like you've read it in a book or seen it on a movie but mum said you know i think your dad would have really want he was so excited about you doing this i think he would have really wanted you to do it. And I don't think you shouldn't just do things because a a dead person wanted you to do it. But you, she, but she also said, I think that the next few weeks are going to be really hard. And I think it's good that you've got something enjoyable to go and do like each night. And I think what that did is inadvertently, it created this thing for me where comedy whether I liked it or not from that point, comedy was always going to have to be, it, it was always going to have to have some truth in it. It was always going to have to have, this sounds naff, but it was always going to have to have like life and death in it. And it was always going to have to have some level of honesty. And, it, and it, that was just the template. There was no going back after that. That's just, that is what it was. I think some people can get into comedy and just like telling jokes and, you know, they can do that for a long time. Um, and I think that's fine. But that was, and for me, there was no, the two were now totally intertwined. And there was no, you I know, mean, maybe it's a bit like when someone starts writing their first songs because someone broke up with them. Like you can't, I think for me, it, it put a darkness into it earlier, but it, and I didn't know what to do with that darkness. I think I wrote and did some horrible stuff that was like, <laughs> The my version of like Hannah's thing was people were probably just writhing but without the laughter <laughs> like but I think what you learn through you know performing for years or writing for years you then learn to sort of strike that balance between the two so I think for me there's I've always needed that truth like I've always needed yeah I don't know that I've just and so when you see that and when you see it right in front of you like I saw with Hannah's show the other night it was just so invigorating. Like I keep trying to find the adjective to describe it like, and invigorating makes it sound like a fucking deodorant or something. Um, but, it, or a like or a mountain stream, but it, it, it was, it was like, that is, I think you spend a lot of time when you're, if you're writing or performing or whatever, sort of circling around your truth. And then you, the art can be a way to, not only express the truth, but to find it or to find a deeper truth in yourself and so I think I don't know I, it was a it was a really really good it was a really good thing for me to watch, so that's probably why I'm thinking or talking about stand up more than I normally would, yeah, yeah, were your parents very supportive of your creative endeavor yeah, they were i it's it's hard i mean it's weird i don't i've i think I think there would have been some years that my dad would have been like, if he was around, he would have been like, what the hell is he doing? You know, cause he was, so much of making comedy early on is failing. Like, and there would have been moments that he would have been like, what are you, this is, cause he was a journalist. So writing for him, I mean, was always about finding the truth, but uh, no, they were my mum. Um, I remember when I went to, in the, like early-ish 2000s, like 2003 and four, maybe five, is when I went back to uni to study writing. Like I figured, like, okay, I have to get better at the craft of this. Like I always had good ideas, but I didn't know how to shape them. And about midway through that course, I realized I didn't have any money. <laughs> like I just one day looked in my, you keep thinking it will be okay. And then I looked in my bank account one day, and I was like, oh, I don't, have any money because it's the problem if you ta if you do too much casual work there's no time to write or you're too exhausted you can't write and I remember thinking I knew that some money was coming a bit later and I thought I reckon I can scrape through I think I can get the rent and I can make it to when the next money is coming if I get four hundred dollars and I remember asking mum can I borrow and mum wasn't rich or anything like Um, And I said, can I borrow $400? I'm really stuck. And I don't know, when you're 24 or 25, it's a hard thing to like, you want to be independent from your parents and you want to show them that you're working in the right direction and you want to like, you know, you you want them to think that it's it's starting to happen for you. And all mum asked, and I've been so grateful to her, was like, she just said, are you still enjoying doing this? And it wasn't like, when are you going to get a job? What will it be? Like, it was just, are you still it? Cause I was sort of a bit upset as I was telling her. And she just said, are you still enjoying it? And I said, yeah, I am. I just, I am not enjoying it if I can't pay, you know, the rent. And I sort of in my mind decided if I, so she gave me the money and it helped. It f- sort of fixed everything. But I remember thinking, I didn't fix everything, but it got me through to the next bit. <laughs> And I remember thinking, if I have to go back and ask her again, then then I might have to work out if I want to do this and or if it's worth it. But, she, yeah, I don't know. I was so grateful to her that it wasn't about a career thing and that it wasn't – it was that she sort of trusted me or something. She just wanted to know if I was happy doing it. And which is an odd thing because I think – often i think it's a very weird relationship in writing between happiness and sadness and i don't think she was like are you happy is it making you i think it was more like is it satisfying you like is it are you like you know are you i don't know are you, yeah is it are you, is it are you, is this satisfying is this what you really want to mm, do sort of thing yeah. yeah fulfilling that's yeah that's a, that's a much better word than the ones i was using so yeah so i i've been hugely grateful I mean, I don't know, like maybe if it was 10 years later and nothing had happened. I have thought a few times if I didn't, I didn't really make a wage from writing until I got the job writing at Rove and that was 2007. And at the time, there was only like one or two shows in Melbourne that had any decent work on them. And I have wondered if that didn't happen, like what would I have done? I I don't know, like I, it's just lucky that, came up because that was three years of work and experience and money and i just have no idea what i would have done if i didn't but i suppose i don't know most people have that you need that one job you know Mm. yeah maybe a lot of people have that if i didn't get that i might be doing something else
0: what would you say some of the i guess the biggest things you learned from working on rove
1: i guess you know coming out of the course were i think uh I remember the first few weeks thinking like they, this is when people still got the news out of newspapers right. and uh, the news sites were just sort of building. So this is like what, 2006, 2007. And uh, I remember going in and they, there was a table just covered in newspapers. And they said, just look at that, look at the news and work out segments that you might want to do on the show. And the first few days I was like, Oh, how easy is this? Cause you're just going this idea, that idea. And then even the first like month or so of working there and leading up to the first episode I remember thinking oh this is the best job in the world and I got a joke into the first show and I thought how easy is this you just like turn up you make each other laugh and then you write it down and then it goes into the show and but then I know it's a bit like gambling or something it's like you always have a beginner's luck you don't know what you don't know so a lot of people will get a joke on their first like very early on because you haven't intellectualized it or something. You just do it. And then I didn't get one for like the next four weeks, like not a single joke in the show. And I just remember thinking, oh, maybe I'm shit at this or I shouldn't be doing this. Or I kept thinking maybe they're going to tap me on the shoulder and I've got to like leave or like and not do this job anymore. And I think that was the hardest lesson in that, You have to do it every week and no matter how you feel or you just have to keep turning up and you have that blank screen every day or every, you know, every week you start with a blank whiteboard and you have to fill it in and it's your job and you can't be precious about it and if something gets dropped or something doesn't get in or you think it's funny, but the host can't imagine it coming out of their mouth or the head writer doesn't like it or it makes it to the last bit and the network goes, no, we don't want to put that on. Like, there was just so many things and it just taught me to just keep writing. Like, there is no choice. Like, you don't have time to whinge if you... I mean, you maybe the you get a day after the show's on if something get, got dropped, but it's not worth it. You just have to move on to the next show. And that muscle of writing, like I think before that I used to think, oh, if I wrote a couple of hours a day, that was like, that was good. But this was like seven, eight, nine hours. And I, it gave me a, a proper discipline for writing. So then when I got to like being able to write my own shows, like the most recent one I wrote with Ronnie Cheng, international student, like we were, we were writing every day for six months We even on the day that my kid was born, we were writing in the lead up to my partner ringing and going, I'm in labor. Yeah. Like, and then Ronnie goes, I'll call you tomorrow. And I was like, no, no, give me a day. like, Give me a day to like bring this new child into the world. But it, it gave this, you just realize it's a job and you have to do it. And I think that was what I, I don't know, that was one of the good lessons of it. So yeah, mm. yeah definitely something that i've been learning a lot in the last couple of years is
0: about looking at creative pursuits like a job mm. you know because i think i think we can often get tied up in feeling like if it well it's art it's you yeah know, organic and you know it's like it's that kind of new agey sort of mentality of it'll come to me when it comes to me and
1: yeah there's a really good have you seen that seinfeld comedian doco no it's really good I, I saw it years ago someone gave it to me on a burn and i've since lost it like on a burnt dvd <laughs> and it was before, i think it was like 2006 maybe and maybe it was just before i got the job at rove and he he it's the whole thing is seinfeld has done his like uh i'm telling you for the last time to it and it's all the material that he's built for like However long he was doing stand-up, 10, 15, 20 years, stuff that ended up going into his show, everything that he'd built, he decides this will be the last time I do this material. I have to start fresh again. And the documentary sort of follows him through that, and you see him building new material in the club. And it's really, at the time, you know, this is before there was heaps of YouTube videos where you can see, you know, you flick on and there's just millions of gigs, This was, you know, you were seeing Seinfeld, who the last time you'd seen him was on the finale of his own TV show. And you were seeing him now in a club playing to like 20, 30 people, trying out jokes, and some of them were bombing. And it was, I remember feeling unbelievably anxious when I watched it because I realized, oh, this is like, this feeling will never go away. Like you're always in the creation of stuff going to have that moment of am I any good or... Is this stupid? Is it a waste of time? And there's this moment in it, though, where Seinfeld is talking about where he got his work ethic from. And he said he used to go to like a Starbucks or a coffee shop somewhere in New York. And when he was a young comic, And he was there one morning and he'd sort of written for half an hour or something. I thought, oh, that's it. I've got a few jokes. I'll try them out tonight. But as he was sitting there, he saw a bunch of uh, like tradies, like sort of workmen. And he saw them come in, all order coffees and morning tea and then finish them and go back to work. And he said he realized, oh, that's their job. That's what they do. They work from early in the morning, then they have a break and then they work again. And he said he realized this is my job. And I have to give it that amount of time and effort and care. And that was sort of where his work ethic began. And you you don't realize it till you need it. You know, you I remember, yeah, I mean, it's, it would be a terrible feeling on Rove if you'd written for the five days and you get to the night before the show was due and you just knew you hadn't come up with it. But you just had to keep digging for it. It's not about... Somebody told me this quote years ago. Maybe I even read it on a calendar, like an inspirational calendar, but it was like, um, don't strike while the iron's hot. Strike to make the iron hot. And I think you have to, like, you just have to keep. I mean, the flip side of that is you can't write for 19 hours a day and not live your life because then you're not experiencing anything. And I've seen people go that way and their comedy becomes very cerebral and. They go. All they do is write and then perform. You have to also live your life. It's a very, very, very delicate balance. But you have to. Yeah, I don't know. You just have to keep writing and keep making things. Prepared to
0: fail as well. Prepared to write shit stuff because knowing that that's gonna get closer to the goal.
1: But it's still there, like that feeling. I remember sitting at Rove, and you would send off like a page at the end of the day. Each day you work on something different, like and on the last day they would get. It was often on the Saturday before the show. It would be topics that had just broken, and so they would go. Can you write news jokes about you know whatever's in the newspaper today or sort of new news? And you know if you if you you'd hope that you'd get over a page for the day. And I worked out. I remember going through them one time, and I worked out that across the writers that there was really great writers, and there were some not so great, and then some in the middle probably one in eight would get up of those jokes, like one in every eight, which means a lot of jokes fail. But as I would email it off, I would often sit there and like it was the end of the day and it was the end of writing for the week and the show was the next day and I'd have a beer. But I would find, I would be looking at the head writers knowing that they'd just opened my email, like hoping that they'd laugh or hoping that they would, and just this terrible feeling of like, I just wrote all this stuff and now it's I don't control it anymore and someone else is reading it. And I mean, it's both. It's terrible and it's sort of exhilarating at the same time. But even now, like when I was working on International Student and Ronnie and I had finished one of the episode scripts and we giving it to our producer to look at and I had just emailed it to her and I was just watching her face and she was sort of not smiling and just staring at it and I just felt mortified and it was like the same feeling that I had felt back at Rove and like 10 years later still feeling that and I was like am I ever gonna does this ever go away and I think if you're doing your job right it probably doesn't but I remember going up to her going which bit don't you like and she goes what are you talking about and I said oh I've just you're reading the thing and you look sort of displeased about the whole script and she said i haven't even got to your script yet she goes i've got 30 emails i need to answer i'm frowning because i haven't got to the emails to read your script and it's like that weird thing of like anxiety mixed with passion mixed with creativity mixed with neuroses like you your mind never stops sort of playing tricks on you with that stuff so it's i don't think it ever goes away but i think it's like I remember hearing Steve Waugh, the you know captain of the Australian cricket team, he was playing, it was going to be his last test at the MCG and he was had played his first ever test against the West Indies and the guy interviewing him said, what do you remember? And he said, I remember walking out and hearing the crowd and to bat and he said, the butterflies that were in my stomach, like I thought I was going to vomit, I couldn't breathe. And he said, you know, he went out and made like eight runs or something and then went out. And then the the interviewer said something like ah oh, must be so much better now where you can just walk out and soak up the atmosphere and he said no i don't i walk out and i still have the same butterflies and if i don't have that feeling in my stomach then i usually go out cuz it's a feeling of readiness and it's a feeling of preparedness and and wanting to do a good job and i, I think it's the same thing like The second it becomes too easy, then you're not testing yourself and you're not pushing yourself and you're not risking something. And I genuinely, I don't think you can make anything good. I can only talk about comedy because it's a thing I do, but I don't think you can make anything good in anything if you don't risk something. I'm pretty, I, I think you have to risk something. Yeah
0: so how do you know when something that you've written or created is, is successful what's that kind of point for
1: you that's a really really good question um, I think on a long form thing like television and not television like live on Rove because that was so instantaneous it's a joke he wrote on the Saturday it could be on TV the next night But when you're doing a scripted thing, to do six episodes for uh, Ronnie's show, International Student, took over six months. And you have to, you do a development where you sort of try to work out each of the episodes and you often get a couple of writers in for that. And then you, you... you sort of work out the premises of those And then you go back and you start to beat out Each episode, meaning you go Okay, should we open with this scene Then is the B story X, or do we see Ronnie do this Or the other actress The other character, Asha, does she do that And you just, you what they call beating it out So you, you beat the story out and that process if you some i mean if you sometimes you can get a run on and get it in like 2 days it just sort of tumbles out other times you can write it completely wrong and then have to go back and you create a beat sheet and then once you've done that and you're happy with that then you go and write the script um and so every way along the way every moment along not every moment but at every then you write the script and then you we'll send it to the producer or the network and then you do another draft and another draft and then eventually everybody agrees that it's ready to be shot, hopefully with enough time before the show. Hopefully you're not, I have been on shows where you're writing it on set, which is just like incredibly difficult. But And then you you go and make it and you you it can take up to a week to shoot an episode or you might shoot bits across a six week shoot and then you have to edit it and then that's in like three different. And so I think I've picked a very anxiety producing sort of uh, form compared to something at Rove. You could write it and sometimes they'd go like just before the show, we need a line to say here and you just come up with it and it's done. And the anxiety is intense in that moment and then it like it's done. But in this, it's like, it keeps going back and forth. And you an idea that you thought of months before still has to have energy in it, like and still has to you have to hope it still is telling a truth for you months and months later and you have to hope that there's a truth that the actor can hook on to. And it just it just goes up and down. Like you you'll be writing the beat shit going, this is the funniest thing. Then you've got to put it into a script and you're going, This is the shittest thing. And then you finish the script <laughs> and then you think of the scene that's missing and you go, Oh, this is the best thing. And it's a real and you, if you've in a six part series where you're writing where both of you are writing all of them, and we we did have a couple of other writers help us, but we your hand is in every script that happens six times, and it's a combination of like hoping and but also like trusting that the idea that you thought of right at the start. And if you've carried that through, that you're trusting that it's a strong idea. But it's also, it just, you you, you go up and down in the process. And the worst thing you can make is, make the worst thing you can do is make a decision because you have panicked. Sometimes a scene you'll do and it just doesn't have the right line at the end. And you go, okay, we've got to change that. But the worst thing I think you can do is go, oh, it's not working and change everything. I reckon that's when you get into trouble. Because you have to trust that what you did at the start is that you made those decisions for you know for a good reason every now and then though you get to the end of an episode and go oh that's not good enough we're gonna have to rewrite the whole thing and that's its own process it's its own terrifying process (laughs) in itself i think i'm making it sound like if you asked me in a few months and the show is on tv and hopefully people like it then i'd be like oh this is the easiest thing it's the best how funny is it but because we only just finished shooting it like two and a half weeks ago, like I'm still thinking about the whole, and we're editing it, so I'm still thinking about the whole process of how it sort of, of of how it comes together. Mm. So do you feel like when you kind of,
0: when you hand it over and when it's done, it's yeah. in the can and it's and it goes to air, that's the kind of, in itself, that's a success or is it more you know, it needs to do well, it's what it leads to, or what's what's that kind of
1: for you? Once it's in the can, I'm okay with it. Like, I, I really make peace with it, and I enjoy it coming out of the TV. Like, I like, you know, everybody streams things now, but I, I still like the sensation of sitting down and watching it on the TV, knowing other people at the same time are watching it on the TV. It reminds me of being a kid, and everybody, you know you and all your mates are watching The Simpsons, or... And, you know, that'll change a lot with streaming and, you know, who knows what will happen with streaming in this country. But I, that, that, I think that will change a lot. But once it's locked and it's there, I sort of make peace with it. I don't, for whatever reason, like people criticizing online has never really bothered me. I don't know why. I think it's, I just feel like it's just too late. Like it's to, the, the, what? What is that gonna achieve? I know it drives some comics mad, and they check every tweet, and well, not just comics, but some writers. And I don't really know if that's I don't I don't know what's to be gained by that. If someone says something nice, so you like it, and if it connects to someone. Um, but yeah, once it's done, and once you can't fiddle with it anymore, and someone else has it in the file and it, you know, and it's, I sort of just, I don't know. I I just make an odd piece with it. And I just figure we did everything that we could. Like it's done. It's you. And the chances are, if you do six episodes, maybe one will not be what you hoped it would be, mm. you know? Um, and maybe you missed the mark on one, but sometimes... I don't know. I don't even think it's about hitting the mark. It's about when I watch a show or you're just always thinking, what were they reaching for? And sometimes the thrill is seeing someone reach for something. Even if they don't quite get it, it's still that they went after something, you know? And that's what I always liked about Sam's stuff, whether it was on stage or TV, that he, I think sometimes he didn't know what he was reaching for, but it was like, it was quite thrilling watching him try to do it. And Uh, whether it was on stage or tv and there was something sort of i don't know something mesmerizing about watching that you know Mm. and you've uh you've moved into producing as well with
0: um with the with international student and fancy boy
1: correct yeah i mean the international student one was sort of because we were the creators of it usually they'll give you it's just sort of easier if you're the creator and the executive producer i still don't know really what it means to, I think you just get the title. Like, I mean, it means that you, you, cause usually an executive producer, at least in this country will be, if you've got a production company, the, 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 whoever it is from the production company you're working with. And then usually a person from the network. And I mean, you look at American shows and they'll have like 15 executive producers. And then, so I just think it means that it, it, it feels like it's a way to protect your work when you're um executive producer. And then, but then, yeah, Fancy Blue, that was a slightly different one because they needed a, a head writer and because they were all a sort of ensemble group together, some had worked in TV, some hadn't. and But that was a role, I think it was cheaper for them to have a head writer that could also be the series producer. And so it was that, effectively what they do in the States now, which is show running, which is you sort of control the creative stuff, but then also not control, but you sort of, that's your sort of role is to shepherd the creative. stuff. Yeah. yeah. To craft it. But then you're also, you know, you, as a series producer, it means you're working with the director, um, with the first AD, with the network. So you're sort of, you're sort of at, you're sort of working at two things at once. And I think it'll, I think it'll go more that way because they're trying to make more stuff in Australia for less money. And I think that that, that's probably a role more and more people will take um, over time. So, yeah, I like it. I mean, I, I mean, you know from working on film crews, everything is so hierarchical and it all comes from the director. Likewise, when you're working on a live show, there's like there's the host, the series producer, then there's the head writer plus segment producers. But it works a bit differently if you're doing a narrative or a sketch thing where you've got a head writer and you've also got a series producer. It means you're sort of like you're not just in the hierarchy, but you're sort of like, I don't know, overseeing the whole thing or, um, so it's a bit of pressure and it means even when that script's submitted, you the job isn't finished yet. Like you're still helping shape it to the very last bit, but it's good. I like it. It's a good, it's a, it's a good role to have You probably, I don't know. There's a perception that a lot of writers and it's probably true are not the best communicators because they hunch a lot over laptops and they're quiet. And some of that's, some of that is true, but the main thing of series producing is the diplomacy and the navigating talent and especially for a lot of it is navigating between the network and the people making it. And it's a lot about, I'm trying not to say the word politics, but it is quite sort of <laughs> political in a way. Yeah. And I think, uh I don't know, I think a lot of writers don't want to do that. They just want to write and not worry about, I think for some of them, it's and maybe i was at the start it's a bit too it's frightening to look behind the curtain and see how your writing is scrutinized or see the reasons that a network says change this or change that and it can be scary for some people but it doesn't i don't know i've always been I, i don't know i like having those discussions with people yeah Yeah, so is it something that you hope to continue doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know if I would be any good at it if it wasn't a narrative show. I think that's the odd skill that I have is I'm good at helping people, like going back to directing Felicity Ward's show or working with Sam. I think I'm good at helping people craft the sort of story they want to tell. I don't know if I'd be any good if it was a... You know, like, in fact, I wouldn't if it was the project or something like that. Like, I don't, I think other people have got that skill. Like, I don't think that would probably be me. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like we could just keep talking. And yeah, talking sorry, and you've got me. I haven't talked to anyone that. for the morning, so you got the first <laughs> conversation. No, yeah. That's excellent. I'm glad yeah. we
0: could put microphones on that first conversation. Probably. Yeah,
1: well, yeah. No, well, I got my. I it was. I had to drop my kid at childcare, yeah. so I've been having very different conversations on right. the way to childcare. Right. Not quite um, as
0: uh, deep or podcast oh no we
1: always talk about the connection the existential connection between comedy truth death and vulnerability just as i drop him at the gates like i'll say look just remember to laugh because one day we're all gonna die (laughs) and he's he's that's he's really good with that he he laughs yeah yeah and he he laughs and then cries and then i leave Oh, so he's already got the life
0: of a comedian. Yeah, that's out right. Out
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that's another conversation in itself. I have tried to, you do start to think, would I, cause he's very interested in, you know, he sees the cameras and stuff and would you encourage your child into that direction? And I don't know, but I, yeah, it's, you do, you think
0: about it. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this podcast, Deck. I finish uh, all my conversations with the same question, which is what makes you silly?
1: Oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's so funny that you say that. Um, I'm thi- The reason Sam Simmons has kept coming up is I had lunch with him. Yes. Yesterday, two days ago, and we both have new babies. And it was this odd thing for us to both have kids. And my other kid, uh, and we hadn't met each other's baby. My other kid, Charlie, who's four, after we left, he said, Sam Simmons is the silliest man in the world. <laughs> Which is like, that's the best review you can have from a kid. Like, yeah. And so what, that's, what makes me silly? I think, and probably again, just because it's in my mind, is I, I took my kid to his first football game yesterday. And I've been really reluctant to take him this year because I barracked for Hawthorne. And oh. I haven't won him to see a like 100-point yeah. loss. And it's very hard to explain to a four-year-old. I oh know we used to be good and we won three premierships and we were a powerhouse team. And now we've given away our first draft pick for this. <laughs> like, you can't really <laughs> explain that. And so I was very, very reluctant to... I just... I, yeah, I. but then I just... I don't know, I just thought, just go, just take him to the game. And I realised through watching it through his eyes, because every time people cheered and there was this like old lady yelling out behind us, you know those people that there's a particular breed of supporter that's like, you know, it's almost like every player is their kid or something. Like she was yelling like, oh, come on, Hartung. You know, are we going to go through this again every week? And like... It uh, And I could see him turning around because you say to kids, like, don't yell, don't, like, and he's watching this old woman, like, and his grandmothers he loves, but he's, like, now watching this old woman who's, like, just screaming like an insane person. And I realized sort of halfway through, like, this is the height of silliness to be yelling about a football game. And to be, but and he, but he was loving every minute of it. But I could also see him like, when I jumped up to cheer for a goal, like I just did it because that's what you do. And also because I didn't expect Hawthorne to win. He just kept going, Dada, why are you standing? Like, because he's <laughs> like, and you, like I realized in that, like this, it's probably the height of my uh, silliness or craziness that it's, you don't behave like that in your life normally and then you do it you know yeah it's this weird release it's kind of absurd communal sort of yeah, tribal yeah it's mental and then today cuz i bought him a hawthorn jumper at the game and then t- and because we won and he then got up this morning and like wore the entire hawthorn like brown shorts and the jumper to his childcare And I was like, oh no, I've infected him with this thing. (laughs) Like this is now in his, you know, it's traveled from my dad into me, into him. So that's probably off the top of my head only because I was thinking about it yesterday. That's probably the height of my silliness. Mm. Um, I think, yeah, I'm sure there's other little bursts of it, but that would, yeah, that would be the height of it at the moment. It's a pretty ridiculous thing. It's mental. Like... I could just, because, you know, you're always telling him not to yell in the house and not to run and, like, if there's people at the dinner table, like, don't. And suddenly you're at this game and everybody's, like, just scream And, like, his eyes were just like, what is going... Like, it's just this, like, wild energy. And then you're suddenly watching yourself through his eyes going, like, who am I in front of this kid? <laughs> so that's probably... I'm sure there's other things. And I I don't think you can make good things without being silly you have to suspend reality and cynicism to believe you can fill a empty page um you know a blank word document you have to you have to be a bit silly and a bit crazy but just for pure undistilled craziness and silliness probably an afternoon at the football is somewhere in that yeah. in that vicinity yeah thank you so much definitely cool man thanks for having me